it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, here we go. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have a really fun episode for you. We have a very special guest. We have Andrew Giancola from the Personal Finance Podcast. And if you have not heard his show, you need to listen to his show. He brings a lot of energy and a ton of information. And it's one of my new favorite shows that I've been listening to, and I really, really enjoy it. So, Andrew, thank you for joining us today. Side note, Folks, we have two Andrews on the show today, so I may or may not screw up. So just, you know, bear with me, please. Dave and Andrew, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be here. That's awesome. So, Andrew, if you wouldn't mind uh, giving us maybe some of your background, like how did you get into money? Like what 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 prompted you to do what you're doing now and get interested in money? So I was the weird teenager that was actually interested in money from a very, very early age where I would start to read money books. I would get money magazine that would come to my house and I would like go and pour through that thing. And even when I was in high school, I was even interested in personal finance and I'd be in computer class, like on personal finance websites. Some of them don't even exist anymore. So I was just that weird teenager that was really, really interested in this stuff and really interested in how to make money. So that's kind of where it started for me was was just kind of being super interested in this stuff and reading as much as I possibly could. And then I started to get interested in investing and started investing as a teenager. And one of the things that I did early on was I would invest in things like penny stocks, for example. And there's a story where I saw a newsletter and I saw a a penny stock that they were talking about. And I put all of my net worth into that penny stock and lost all my money in 24 hours. And it was one of those things where that was the moment in time for me when I started to invest where I said, hey, I can figure out how this actually works. Obviously, what I just did was the wrong way to invest. And so I need to learn this stuff. So I started to learn as much as I possibly could 
on investing. And that's kind of where it started. And then my background is in finance. So I worked in corporate finance for a very long period of time. And then when I left corporate finance, we started a, a real estate company and we were investing in real estate. And then from there, I started the personal finance podcast. And that's kind of where it all kind of grew and, and went from there. So I have been really, really interested in personal finance for a long period of time. And now I just love teaching people about it. Maybe maybe we could start there for a second. Do you have, as part of the personal finance podcast, is there a plan or a program or a framework that you like to hammer home for listeners? There's a, there's a bunch of different ones that we have, but the biggest one that we really, really talk through, and I think it's the most important thing for a lot of people with their finances, is that you need to automate everything. So one of my favorite frameworks is kind of going through automation. We call it money on autopilot, but it is one of the things that I think you definitely have to do because you can remove your willpower from the equation. And really, if you automate correctly, it can, it can remove budgets from your equation. It can remove having to utilize your willpower to invest your money. And I think it is one of those things that really uh, can change your life if you really learn how to automate overall. So we look at it as you start off automating your spending and your savings and you automate your bills and you go through and automate your investments and, and you go step by step through that process. Was there something that triggered that for you? Have you always been interested in that since the money magazine days or how did that look like for you? So for us, when it, when it came to automation, when I first graduated from, from college, I really very quickly learned that I was not making much money. I was an entry-level job, so I was making $30,000 per year. So I realized that really I, I wasn't getting by, but I also wasn't tracking my spending. So I started with YNAB, and I started to track my spending and, and my money that way. And very early on, realized that you know this is kind of a tedious task, and it was one of those things that definitely have to do, but it's something that I did not love doing. So I would have a you know a line by line and a budget is what I call it or a zero based budget, and I had this for you know over the course of five to seven years. But over time, as my life got busier, I realized I just wasn't being as consistent as I wanted to be. So instead, I tried to figure out a way how can I kind of remove this from my life. And the way that I did that was through automation and automation kind of helped me still budget my money, but I don't have to be looking at spreadsheets and I don't have to look at all these different things. Instead, I can just automate everything and everything happens without me even having to lift a finger. So that's kind of where it started. I thought that it was kind of a tedious task. And most people, if we put budgeting in our, our show title, for example, guys, it is one of the worst performing episodes we ever have. So it is one thing I know a lot of people hate this stuff. And so if you can just learn how to budget with automation, I think it is so much more powerful because you're not looking at spreadsheets. Now, if you love spreadsheets, some of you listening, I'm sure, love spreadsheets and you love being in the nitty gritty, then that all more power to you because that is the most optimized way to do this thing. But if you want to really remove some of these things out of your life and just go live your life and live your best life, then I, I love this process. So I, I'm curious, what kind of tools do you use to do this, the, the, the automation thing? I think that's fascinating. So I use a number of different tools now. There's some great ones out there where you can go through. And for example, if you want to automate your net worth, you can use Empower. But one one of which is I look through and try to figure out, hey, how can I save my money in different areas so I don't have to worry about it all? So like I use Ally Bank for my high yield savings account. And this has been a game changer for me because they have these things called savings buckets. So instead of having to uh, you know put something in a, in a budget, instead I can save for car repairs. I can save for my emergency fund. I can save for house repairs or if I want to save up for a big vacation, I can do this all automatically. I don't even have to think about it. It just automatically goes into each category. And so this is one of the bigger things for me is the savings goals overall. 
Another tool I utilize is something like Rocket Money, which is free or you can pay like four bucks a month. And that'll just tell you your subscriptions. I just went through this process with my subscription specifically. And embarrassingly, I just canceled $200 worth of subscriptions a couple of months ago. So it's one of those things where this these tools are really, really helpful overall to kind of notify you when things are going on. And then I only spend like five minutes a month on my finances and I have progressed more so with automation than I did when I was tracking it line by line every single month. Even the pros need tools. Exactly. Need tools. It's it's super important. And obviously, when you're investing, you can use stuff like like Empower or personal cap. You'd be personal capital where you can kind of watch your investments if you want to. But I don't look at my investments as much as I used to back in the day. So a lot of times, I just automate it into the brokerage accounts or the Roth IRA or obviously my solo 401k. Those types of things are are where I just automate that as well. So I don't even have to think about it. It's just mm-hmm. investing those dollars. So is that what happened once you automated? You, you kind of reduce a lot of the stress? 100%. And that was kind of my goal was to reduce that stress, that anxiety overall, because I was just, I was honestly beating myself up just for not making sure that my budget was perfect every single month and making sure that everything was aligned and optimized. And if you're interested in things like, you know, financial independence or optimization or anything like that, you can really beat yourself up about this stuff. So optimization actually removed that out of the equation and allowed me to just, you know, actually sit back and relax. And that's why we kind of call it on autopilot because you really don't have to do that much stuff. And then quarterly, I have a little checklist that I go through to make sure, you know, everything's actually working properly and it's automating in the right way. But outside of that, there's really not much that I do throughout the year and I don't have to think about it. And it's all because, you know, technology has advanced and there's automation available for everybody. That's cool. So maybe we can rewind and kind of go back to that. I think a lot of investors start to, I don't want to say panic, but they they really, really want to find the most optimal way. What's the best optimization I can do to make the most returns in the shortest amount of time? Obviously, that's the, the thing everybody's chasing. But you mentioned, I mean, it's a pretty big chasm between doing a penny stock that evaporated overnight to having automated and sounds like a very structured and you obviously feel like it's optimized. So how did you get from, from, you know, one extreme to the other? What, what did that look like, especially in the beginning for investors who might relate to this idea of not knowing which way to go? So when I started, like I said, I had the penny stock first, and then I started to to kind of read more and more. And some of the biggest books I read early on were just things on personal finance, like The Millionaire Next Door, which led me to other things like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and then diving more into investing books. So I started to dive into a lot of your listeners probably love Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. I read everything I could get my hands on from them. And that's where a lot of my lessons came into play, where I started to buy individual stocks and I would dive into, you know, different, different 10Ks, those t- different types of things. I would spend so much time. I was trying to be the next Charlie and Warren, which, you know, when you're young, you think you could do something like that. And so I would read all the time and try to dive into each of these stocks. I would listen to all these different podcasts and, and try to, to go through the day to day of understanding what each of these stocks mean and, you know, the business and everything behind them. And so I started as an individual stock investor, just buying, you know, blue chip stocks and trying to find some great companies. And so that's where I started, where I realized, hey, I'm going to buy and hold these companies. And over time, I was surprised that these, you know, I would I would make more money. And some mistakes that I made along those way was that along the way was that I would buy a company, it would go up for a little while. And as a young investor, I thought, hey, I got a profit here, let me sell it. And so I would sell that company. And then that company would skyrocket even higher after I sell it every single time. That seems like what it happens for me. And so I quickly realized that maybe 
I don't make the best decisions when it comes to individual stocks for me personally. So what I ended up doing was even though I was doing all this research and I was spending all this time, then I started to look even further and I found index funds and ETFs and index funds. If you're noticing a a theme with me here is I'm trying to simplify my finances as much as possible, but still get the optimal performance. And so index funds and ETFs kind of match that criteria for me and allowed me to kind of dollar cost average into them every single month and get that seven to 10% rate of return. Historically, it's been 10%. We don't know what it's going to be in the future. If you invest in something like an S&P 500, for example, but just to get those average rate of returns, which for me beat out a lot of those professional investors, those mutual fund investors, those mutual fund managers out there. And that's all I really wanted to do is just get the average rate of return. Because if you look at that over a very long period of time, you can become extremely wealthy with average rates of return. Don't have time to search the whole stock market. Tired of waiting through endless information. Instead, get my trusted stock picks at valuespotlight.com. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Yeah, and so I, I guess to kind of kind of continue on that that path, what what does the portfolio for you look like now and how do you automate that? 
So the biggest way that I automate it overall, if we're just talking about my stock portfolio, I look at A, I have a solo 401k now, where for the longest time, we just had a traditional 401k. Now I have a solo 401k. And then I have a Roth IRA, an HSA, and a taxable brokerage account. So the order that I actually look at these are, I look at the Roth IRA and the HSA as the most important. And the reason for that is the Roth IRA, the money goes in and you pay taxes on that money. It's already in your paycheck. And the money grows tax-free and you can pull the money out tax-free. And that tax-free growth is so incredibly powerful. Over time, if you max out your Roth IRA, over the course of 30 years, you can have you know over a million dollars in that account and about $800,000 is going to be tax-free money. So I love the Roth IRA for that reason. Then you can look at something like an HSA and an HSA is stands for a health savings account. But I utilize this as a retirement account. I call it the super retirement account because money can go in tax-free. You can invest those dollars and they can grow tax-free and you can pull the money out tax-free as long as you have a qualified medical expense. Mm-hmm. Now, if you get to the age of 65 and you have not spent all of that money, it just turns into a traditional IRA basically. And so you can utilize that money in retirement as well. But your healthcare costs will also probably rise. So you'll have more medical expenses there. But the cool thing about these qualified medical expenses is that you do not have to, there is no time horizon. The IRS has no time horizon on when you can, so you can break your ankle, for example, when you're 22, and you can pull money out when you're 59 for that 22 year old, for that broken ankle when you were 22. So that is the first two that I look at. Then I go to my solo 401k, and try to max that out every single year. And then I go to my taxable brokerage after that. And there's one big thing about a taxable brokerage that I think a lot of investors need to, to kind of think through, and it is extremely flexible. So sure, you're actually paying less taxes than you would on your income. But in addition, is one of the most flexible things, especially if you're listening to this podcast and you want to be financially independent, you have this thing that can help you bridge that gap where it's extremely flexible. And if you have all this wealth built up, for example, you can pay for your kid's college with it. If you don't go with a 529 plan, there's so many cool things that you can do with a taxable brokerage account. And I've even utilized liquidated parts of my taxable brokerage account to buy physical businesses. So this is one thing where it is a really, really cool account to make sure that you have. And I love to be diversified in those tax buckets. Okay. So we you just segued, I think, the perfect segue to talk about these physical businesses. You mentioned that off the air. I think it'd be really interesting to hear how you started down that path and what that looks like for you. So I got bit by the physical business bug when I started to kind of look and and kind of run the numbers on some of these things. And for me, originally, the way I got into this was I saw there was a large portion of the baby boomer population that was about to retire. And this is a massive opportunity for a lot of people because they own the majority of businesses in the U.S. currently. And so a lot of them don't even know that they could sell these businesses from things like plumbing companies to electric companies. A lot of them are boring to other types of companies. And so I started on the hunt to try to find some of these companies. And so I went through all these different industries and it's kind of like looking into a stock. Honestly, you're looking at P&Ls, you're looking at balance sheets. And as you progress with these companies, it's pretty cool to kind of unfold and see you know, what their profit and loss statements are showing and how profitable they actually are. And you can kind of dive through and the stock training, you know, going through 10Ks, things like that actually significantly helped me when it came to going through this process. So that's one cool thing for individual stock investors is you are building a skill that you can utilize in the real world outside of just your stock investments, which is really, really cool. So as you progress through this, I started to go through different industries and figure out what I liked. I was starting to look at some laundromats, which I would almost argue is more of like a real estate deal than it would be just a typical typical business buy. And then I was also looking through you know, boring companies like plumbing and electrical. But what I landed on was a very different type of business from boring overall. 
And what we did was we ended up buying an indoor pickleball facility. So if you've ever played pickleball before, <laughs> it is a one of the fa- it's the fastest growing sport in the, in the country right now. About 35 million Americans play pickleball. And there's a pickleball facility down the street that opened up in April. And the owner just opened it up because he wanted to teach his kids about business. And it was it was some of his teenage son's idea. And very, very quickly, this business kind of exploded and became way more than he could handle or what he expected it would become. And so we were actually looking at opening our own pickleball facility because we play and by we, I say myself and my father, who was who was retired, and he was trying to figure out some sort of activity to do. And so we went in 50-50 on this facility together. And we structured it in a really, really cool way as well, which I can talk about. But we eventually talked to him and, and, and went through this process with the owner. And he said, you know, listen, I'm really, really stressed out. This is a lot of work for me. And I want to, you know, figure out a way that we can kind of work together. So we ended up working out a deal and, it, and it's been a really cool process thus far. We've only owned it six, since October. So we've had it a couple of months, but it's been one of those things that it was a really fun process to go through this. So what is the structure? I'd be curious. Sure. So the way that we structured it was we had initially a down payment and the down payment was just a small percentage, about 10% of the entire purchase price. And the way that we structured it was we did, this is the cool thing about physical businesses is we did seller financing. So instead of going through a traditional bank, we went through the seller and said, Hey, we'll put this money down. And then in addition, what we want to do is structure this creatively. My biggest personal fear was that pickleball was either a fad or they're going to build a bunch of different courts around it. And so I wanted to protect that downside. So for me specifically, all we have on this is we have a personal guarantee in year one. And so we make the payments in year one and it ends up being, you know, a larger portion of our revenue. It's probably around 30% of our revenue is what the payments are. But then after year one, which is still profitable, but after year one, what we have structured is it's going to be 50, 50 per- 50% of the net profits. So it's gonna be a 50-50 split of net profits until he's paid off. So basically, if the facility is doing poorly, he shares in that downside. If the facility is doing well, he shares in that upside. And so we also kept him on as a 20% owner because he has a lot of expertise, even though he's only been open (laughs) since April. And that has been tremendously helpful overall. And so we structured it in a way where I was worried about the downside and I was worried about, you know, is this fat? Are they going to build the courts around there? But now it is something where we are protected from that downside because of that. And he's happy to be to still be involved because he can share in the upside as well if we try to expand, which our goal is to to maybe expand into a couple of locations. That's super cool. It's it's mm-hmm. like a convertible bond, but but a little more uh, like an, another level to it. So how does operations look for for something like this? So so far, operations on our end, the big part is, and this is what was helpful with my with my dad kind of being retired, is I put in more cash because I knew he'd kind of be there day to day. So what we did was we have him in there day to day as he's he's retired. And so he's kind of running the operations currently. The goal is, and we just had one of the employees that we we kind of noticed is really a, an overperformer. We brought him up as gonna be like the the GM essentially. And then we'll probably get a couple of other managers as well. But right now they're kind of running the day to day. I'm on the back end running scheduling. I'm running, you know, finances, all those different types of things. But he's kind of running the day to day operations. And the hardest part with this business is we run basically on a class. We run it based on like classes instead of trying to compete with public courts where you're just kind of having open player memberships. We have classes in place 
so that we can kind of build our own little moat, for example, where we have, you know, classes where you can, you know, learn to get better or you can play with in leagues or those types of things. So we have things where we, we try to create a reason for you to come instead of you just trying to come there and play for four or five hours, because that's not a profitable way to do it for us either. So from an operation standpoint, that's the biggest puzzle to solve is how do you kind of market that properly? And then in addition, you have employees. So we have about 20 employees that work at the facility. And so that's always difficult in these businesses. So learning how to manage these employees and train them properly and create SOPs and all those different things are going to be the, the main main factor. So when it comes to SOPs or standard operating procedures, one big thing that we're doing is we're creating the, the typed SOPs, but we're also doing things on video as well. So they can watch a video if they're more visual. And that seems to be really, really helpful overall to kind of show them you know, how these systems work and how these procedures should go. All right. Two two questions, maybe kind of related. Are you super passionate about pickleball? And then do you feel like your personal work experiences have kind of come together to help you with this? So initially, my dad had been playing pickleball for three or four years, and I thought it was the stupidest looking game in the world. It looked like a giant ping pong ping pong court or a mini tennis court. And it was one of those things where I thought I would never play it. And so in December, it's only been a year, December of last year is when I started playing and immediately got hooked. And I told my friends about it. And they're all they're all, you know, ex uh, college basketball players and football players. And they're all like, oh, I'm not gonna play that. That looks stupid. Now they are all hooked. And so we have, you know, just a giant group of people that started playing. And there was even, you know, we'll go to the courts and there's 30, 40 people. And when you go to the courts, there's already a hundred people waiting in my area. So it is a really, really high demand. And I've honestly started playing and, and fell in love with it and become passionate about it. I'm less passionate than my dad is, but I'm still passionate about it. And I think that to answer the second part of your question, I think that a lot of the work experiences that I've had have been extremely helpful overall in kind of learning how to manage a business like this. If I did this 10 years ago, it'd be a much different experience where my stress levels would be extremely high. I'd probably be, you know, just panicking all the time, but I've kind of learned to, to calm down and just handle each problem as it comes. It has definitely brought more problems onto my life. It's not like an easy thing to do whatsoever, but it, it is one of those things that it, it's extremely rewarding and it's kind of fun to solve these pro- these puzzles now. Do you think it'd be as fun if you didn't like pickleball? I think it would be. So the previous owner doesn't play at all. And he loves kind of unlocking and solving these problems. He's our our minority partner now. And so I think it's just kind of solving the business problems. Honestly, since I've owned it, I've played maybe one time because I've been so busy trying to solve some of these little problems. And so I think it's kind of fun just to kind of try to unlock these these things and, and go through that process. And so if you, for example, if I bought something that was, you know, maybe an ice cream shop, but it was profitable and it had these some of these similar problems, I think I'd be okay with it overall, even though I'm not like a huge ice cream enthusiast. Oh, that's super interesting. So I guess what, and I'm sorry if I missed this, but what prompted you to look at this as an investment choice, like as far as physical businesses? So once I started to kind of see the data of the opportunity that could arise based on the amount of baby boomers that were going to retire and had and own these businesses, because it's over 50% of them, they own 50% of the small businesses in the country right now. Then I realized very quickly that, hey, I was investing in real estate and I could, you know, invest the same amount of money into these these businesses and have a way higher return. Sure, my workload or the the return on hassle is going to be much higher as as Nick Majuli would say, but at the same time, if I'm okay with that return on hassle, then it's going to be something where it's going to be worthwhile overall. So I figured based on the numbers that I could cash flow much higher than I could in real estate, 
And so that's where I, I was much more interested in doing so. Now, it is much easier just to buy an index fund or an ETF for sure, because you can just keep buying them, sit back and relax. But this kind of helped me diversify my income streams overall. And then just it was it was more comfortable for me actually to do this. Yeah, I mean, I love it uh, mm-hmm. coming from a guy who also enjoys the return on hassle. Yeah. It's it's cool to see you doing it, but kind of in your own way, because I don't feel mm-hmm. like I hear this talked about much. Mm-mm. And it's one of those things where originally we had on our show, we had Cody Sanchez a while ago. It was a couple of years ago, like before now she's, she's massive, but, but we had her originally a couple of years ago and she was telling me off air. She's like, I own all these different companies and she has them rolled up in a holding company from laundromats to do all these different, just weird, different companies, product podcast production companies. And she was talking through it. And I'm like, these numbers are just making sense. And so I kind of went in there and if I'm, if it's worth that return on hassle, then I can definitely make this happen. So I figured, Hey, I'm going to try it and see if it works and then see if we can go from there. We were close on a number of different businesses, including like car washes. For example, we had a car wash where we were going to close the next day. And I found out a bunch of new information that the, the previous owner was, was withholding from me that three brand new of those automatic car washes were about to open within a five mile radius. So I dodged a bullet on that one. So you got to be really careful on this due diligence side because that could have been a huge problem. And the weird thing about that car wash is six months later, it burned down. So it's one of those things wow. where I really dodge a bullet on that. Yeah. But, but there's, you got to be careful on some of these and make sure that you understand everything going on and make sure your due diligence period is longer if you're interested in doing something like this. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep podcast. I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention, and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of... Classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh. Stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much-needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. Yeah. So you mentioned one of the risks that really got you worried initially was this idea that pickleball could be a fad. We talk all the time on the show about trying to really be honest about what risks are with an investment and really dissecting those and being comfortable 
making sure you really understand those risk factors. So what did that process look like for you and how did you come with to the conclusion that pickleball, you're comfortable with the pickleball thing? So I was, you know, it's still something that's in the back of my head all the time of it being a fat, but I was thinking through this process. And as I went through this, I was like, if I can structure this deal in a way that reduces that downside, I'm, I think I'm going to be okay. But since I play pickleball, I go to all the courts in the area and every court you go to, you literally can't play if you're playing outside because there's so many people waiting and they just haven't built enough courts. So then I'm like, well, if they start to build out these courts in the next three to four years, what kind of problems am I going to have? Well, we need to make sure that this business is not competing with those courts and instead is, you know, doing a different, different business model so that we can actually build a rate of return here. So we have, you know, leagues, we have different things like we have rating systems that you can get if you come into our facility. We have different, different classes in all these different ways where you can improve as a player. And that's kind of where we focused on because I didn't want to compete with them. So hedging against that downside risk of building more courts was a big one. But like you said, the second one was that fad. So making sure the deal was structured properly, where if this is a fad, you can kind of, you know, walk away and be able to, to be okay without having too many scratches. Yeah, that, that, that's awesome. So how do you feel, how do you feel like this is going to do you, is it, is what you're doing now, is that scalable? Not only just in the pickleball business, but maybe just in the old overall investing in in physical businesses. Is that something, you know, the return on hassle? I I used to run a restaurant, and and I I understand the return on hassle quite well. I'm and sure. so, is it is that is this idea that you're trying to do is this scalable? And and I guess at what level do you feel like it is scalable? It 100% is. And for us, one of the big things overall is just for this business alone, for example, is that we are the first of its kind in Tampa, Florida. It's super, super hot here. So people like playing indoors with the air conditioning. Right now, it's a little nicer. But for the most part, it is really, really hot here. It's not fun to play. So in the summertime, we are like jam-packed where you can't even get a court all day long unless you're months ahead. And so one of the things that we want to do is maybe be that since we are the first mover, we understand how the business works now. We want to, you know, maybe have a couple more locations. But then in addition, I've seen other locations now, you know, across the country, they franchise these. And there's a there's a model here that's very simple, that is very teachable that you could franchise out if you wanted to scale this. Or if you just wanted to have the one, two or three facilities, you could roll it up into something uh, like a, a personal holding company. And then you can keep repeating this process with different businesses, but you have to have the right management and operations in place in order to achieve that. So it's really, really important to have that right operations in place. Charlie and Warren talk about this all the time. If you have the right manager in place, it is really, really easy. So you can kind of model after them. This is essentially what they did on a massive scale is they would buy things, obviously like seize candy, and they would just get good operators in place and they would have those operators in place and they would sit around and read all day because they, they had those right operators in that business. So if you can do a small, really small version of this, and I would love to do this with online businesses as well, then you could really, really figure out a way to kind of have, you know, a lifestyle that you still want, but have a holding company of a, a holding company of a bunch of different companies and maybe get a higher rate of return based on that. That's cool. I, yeah, I, I love it. It's, it's, it's just capitalism, right? So are you, are you employing leverage in this or how, how are you funding um, this whole thing? Exactly. So we put we put about ten percent down, and then le- the leverage is the 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 previous owner is holding the note now. So he's actually becoming the bank, and that's the beautiful thing about these businesses. You can do seller financing and have instead of having to go through a traditional bank. And so this is one of the the my favorite ways to utilize this. And 
And so we have the personal guarantee for the first year is how we have it structured. And then outside of that, the personal guarantee goes away and then we're just kind of working in tandem on that 50-50 split. And so that's where it really, really comes into play. And it's helpful to utilize that leverage because you don't have to have a massive amount of cash in order to buy some of these. Instead, you can go through and be able to, to utilize leverage. Do you think on future properties, that would be a similar vehicle that you would use? I think it would be because for us overall, even for that car wash example, we utilized seller financing, seller financing again, where we had that deal in place and we were, we were getting it for, honestly, that was even a smaller amount down for that deal alone. We were buying a car wash for about $50,000 down and we were going to be able to, to, to acquire a car wash that produces about $20,000 per month. So there's a lot of really cool stuff that you can do here and seller financing, I think is the, one of the, the best, best things you can do when it comes to these small businesses where you're working with the seller. And especially if they're looking to retire, this is a win-win situation because the seller is looking to retire. They can make a six, seven, percent rate of return on their money if they wanted to. We negotiate lower than that. But if they you know, negotiate to a 6% rate of return, they can have this 6% rate of return while they're in retirement and you are owning their business and they're reaping the rewards of that return. So it's a win-win situation where it could be their retirement income. A lot of these business owners don't have retirement savings. And so this can be really, really helpful and for both sides. Do you know like how long seller financing has been around? So I know in the real estate industry and where I really learned about it was was when I would invest in real estate. It's been around for, you know, some time at least. I've read books in the 80s, for example, and they've talked about it before. But beyond that, I don't know how long people have got creative about this. And that's kind of what I love about these deals is that you can get as creative as you want to as long as you can think about it and you can get a lawyer to write it up in a contract. It is going to be one of those things where you can get really really creative. And in fact, when we initially did this deal, we we went to a lawyer to to write up the contract and he didn't understand what we were talking about and didn't want to write it up. So we had to go find another lawyer to actually write it up in this creative way. So it's interesting how you can you come up with this, but you can get creative as creative as you want to, as long as both sides agree. And hey, that might be an opportunity for somebody who wants to start a lawyer business, mm-hmm. you know, whatever they call it, lawyer firm to right. specialize in seller financing. Um, exactly. Do you have thoughts on interest rates at all? And, um, you know, obviously you're, you're more of the operator kind of investor, not not necessarily like in the whole finance thing as far as like looking at interest rates. But do you have thoughts on that? I do, especially. Are you talking about economically overall? Yeah. And so like yeah, it, the impact so, so, to, to seller financing in particular. So for seller financing in particular. So for for seller financing, you can get you can negotiate really, really well. So what I found is that you can get much better terms in seller financing than you would going to a traditional bank. So like interest rates right now are, what are they, seven, eight, nine percent somewhere in that range. If you went and got a bank loan for a business, it'd be closer to the 9% range. And so for us, we've got the rate down to about 5% is where we are now. And then in year two through five, it's going to go down even more so. So you can structure these really creatively where maybe you even make it a higher amount in year one. So that seller knows, hey, I'm sticking around. I'm not going to leave. And then you reduce that amount every single year. So those rates can go down, especially if interest rates are going to drop. But you can negotiate with seller financing. Specifically, you can negotiate a much lower rate than a bank would actually hold. So it is one of those things where traditionally, I've seen a lot of people talk about like 5% is kind of the, the middle ground where a lot of people are willing to take that. But you've we've gotten it down to 25 3% on a couple of different folks when we were in negotiations initially. So there's, there's ways that you can do it. And we even had one seller who was willing to do it for a 0% interest rate. So there's a lot of pros to this where you can save a lot of money with seller financing as well. And it doesn't, it's not something where you have to really worry about the hoops you have to jump through with the bank. I mean, 
five percent is less than most mortgages today. So yeah. I, you know, I don't know the timeline of when you secured it, but that's that's an interesting idea. Yeah. It, exactly, and so that's what I love about it because it's just you can you can do whatever you can get the other person to agree to. So it's all negotiation and it's all one of those things where is if you're a good negotiator, seller financing would be a great way to go for you, but it also helps them because they're getting cash flow coming in and they're getting that rate of return on it. What would be the biggest risks for somebody who's thinking about doing it that way? I mean, we're, we're very risk focused on the show, so can't let you get away without talking about some of those. And are there any like, collateral, personal guarantees, anything like that that goes along with this kind of idea? The personal guarantee is the biggest thing that you should be focusing on, in my opinion, because of that. For initially, Here's a great example. So initially, we were talking through where they wanted a personal guarantee on the entire amount. If this was a fad, I was not okay with that. And so that would have been a deal breaker for me. So you have to kind of think through that personal guarantee because I know people who have started their businesses and they have an entire personal guarantee and they lose their house. So you're putting up things that really, really matter when it comes to your family and your home life. And so you have to make sure that you are focusing on that personal guarantee. And so when you go through this, I would try to either reduce that personal guarantee to a year or less or even zero sometimes if you can do it. But personal guarantees for me are big, big deal breakers. Outside of that, you want to make sure that the terms are structured properly. So obviously that interest rate needs to be on the lower end if you can get it there and make sure everything is structured in terms of you know how you're going to make payments, when you're going to make payments, what's going to happen if you can't make that payment. Those types of things are really, really important. And so having those in writing and making sure their contract is set up and getting a, the right attorney that knows what they're doing is, is really important when it comes to this. So the, the biggest downside in me personally is because if this fails, what's going to happen? Well, that personal guarantee is going to kick in. So you need to make sure that you are really negotiating that down if you can. That's perfect. It's awesome. Yeah, it is. A a question that kind of comes to my mind. You were talking earlier about your near-death experience with the the car wash. How, what is, you know, I I invest in public companies. So I, I, you know, I have a, a good idea of how due diligence works. How would due diligence work in this kind of circumstance? Where do you go to find the information other than the person you're buying it from? This was extremely labor intensive for the car wash. So this is one where it's very different because they're using coins and they're using dollar amounts and they also are using their own little coins that they manufactured in there. So you have to go in there and kind of make sure these numbers are matching up. So the pickleball facility, we can kind of see, you know, we just pull up their square dashboard, for example, and you can see the transactions coming in. But when it comes to the car wash, we got to go in there and we got to count money. We got to count the coins coming in. We got to make sure that nobody's kind of padding this money coming in. We got to look at the their manufactured coins and make sure nobody's just kind of throwing a bunch of coins in the machine. There's a lot of different things you have to do. But then in addition, it's an automatic car wash. One of the ones that you had, like the wands where you spray down your car. And with that, there's a lot of like complex machinery in there that you got to make sure is actually working and in good working order. So between those two things, the due diligence of making sure that they're actually earning the amount they're saying is really, really important. So we go there three times a week and go count the money with the owner just to make it more frequent. So we could see, you know, how is this pacing? What is this looking like? And we did that for about a month before we even got to the point in time where we could go to the closing table. So that was one thing that really it takes a long time if it's something like a coin operated thing. So that's much easier long-term operationally to have something coin operated, but short-term, you really have to do your due diligence before you actually buy the business. Is there any sort of key man risk in getting involved in these kinds of businesses? Key man, key man risk, I mean, in what way? It, like, 
like Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, like like you know, if this if you remove this person, like if you go into a deal, let's say you, you go into a deal, and the person that's running the business is really kind of the the cult of personality, the person that really is driving the business, and if that person wants to leave. That's really the you know a biggest asset of the business, and so does that does that impact? You can that impact the negotiations and whether you want to buy the company or not. One hundred percent, because especially if you know they're they're relying on the relationships that they already have with different distributors. That is why I think it is really really important that if you're in looking at a business like that, you need to make sure that they stay on as a minority partner or they want to be involved for some some period of time, and you can kind of factor in a salary into your numbers because having that person, that key person involved is really important, at least for the first year or two, so that they can kind of show you what's going on, introduce you to their contacts, that type of thing. So I think it's really important. We were looking at one flower shop that was over in Orlando and they would distribute flowers to Disney. And they had a key person like that where they had all the relationships with Disney and their entire business was really Disney to, to kind of manufacture these flowers for their flower shop. So that was one where that person would definitely need to stay on for a much longer period of time in order to get the business working and make sure those relationships were staying. And so what we were thinking was somewhere around five years for that specific instance. So that is one where it could come into play for sure. If it's coin operated, if it's like a laundromat, car wash, then it's not that as big of a deal. But if they are the face of the business, then I think you definitely need to consider it for a short period of time so that you can do some sort of transition where both of you are the face and then you can transition the other person out. I guess my last question kind of along these lines is where do you where do you source ideas for companies that could be a potential? So a lot of times I will look at there's a website called Biz Buy Sell. And the thing about Biz Buy Sell is that there is a lot of people on there. So This is kind of the place where I just go through and then look for ideas. And so the flower shop idea came up by just looking through what businesses are actually for sale. Then I'll take those ideas and say, hey, which businesses in my area actually exist that do this? And then I'll go and call them because I would much rather have an off-market deal than an on-market deal. So all of them that I was really looking at, I was trying to find off-market. So I would call the owners and talk through that with them. But I would get the ideas from Biz Buy Sell and you can go you can go on there right now and you can see all these different businesses in your area for sale. But it removes that broker from the equation, which sometimes if you're brand new, maybe you want that broker in the equation. And so it's definitely it's definitely something that could be beneficial. But you can get these seller financing deals, which is what I really, really want to focus on. You can get them much easier if it's an off-market deal. And so that's kind of where I started to source all these and where I found some of the deals early on. So, you know, we mentioned earlier, capital is limited here. So... I'm hoping you're generous with your ideas. Are there any industries or pockets on biz buy sell that you would be like, man, that would be so cool to do, but I might not be able to do it. So maybe somebody out there can like what, where would you recommend people to look that looks really exciting for you right now? Some of the ones that I really like, and this, these are really exciting for me, but they're boring. And overall, you see a lot of Harvard graduates even trying to come out and, you know, they'll, they'll leave banking or they'll leave Wall Street and they'll try to roll these up. And they are the boring, you know, essentials that people need. So this is plumbing companies, for example. So they are extremely profitable. It's amazing how profitable they are. I've seen some that we came across, for example, where they were doing $20 million in revenue and they were doing 8 to $9 million in profit a year. And you could buy that business for, you know, $2 million down. So it's one of those things where there's a massive, massive amount of profit that you can make based on some of these. So plumbing, electrical companies are two, two like really, really big ones that a lot of people are rolling up. Now the competition on those are becoming higher because of that. 
but it's some, I always try to think of what is a recession proof business? Obviously I bought pickleball. It's not even remotely close to that, but what is a recession proof <laughs> business that you can have is really what the moat that I want to have overall, because I think it is one of those things that can really, really help you. So all those essentials are, are really, really powerful. The ones I would stay away from are some that aren't as profitable. So plumbing and electrical are really profitable. Lawn care companies are ones that are much less profitable unless they have a bunch of commercial accounts, for example. And so those are ones where I initially I wanted to look at those. I looked at lawn care, I looked at pool routes, those types of things, but they were much less profitable overall than some of those those bigger roofing companies and lawn care, roofing companies and plumbing and electrical, those types of things. Uh, If the memes on Instagram are true at all, then with the capabilities of my generation and the generation to come as far as DIY and all of that, uh, the booming might just be getting started. I 100% agree because I am probably the least handy person in the entire world. And I, every time I try to fix something like the other, you know, the last thing I try to do is I try to fix plumbing in my bathroom and I flooded my entire bathroom. So it's just not something that I am willing to to do anymore. And even if I go try to fix something, my wife's like, no, just call somebody, please. So we, we've gone through that a bunch of different times now where I think our generation, I don't have a single friend that I can think of who is who is super, super handy, like like how a lot of you know my my father's generation was and his friends and those type of things. So I definitely think it could be the trend is going up for sure. That's awesome. So this is newer to your your kind of financial journey. What how, where do you hope that this goes? Do you do you hope that this becomes half of your investment portfolio, 70%, 20%? Like what are your do you have maybe not defined goals, but where do you kind of hope to take this? My hope overall is to try to, A, for the pickleball short term is to kind of expand it to a couple locations. Then my goal is to own a bunch of different businesses, maybe slowly every five to seven years in that range, is to try to find another one to kind of roll up. And then overall, maybe have, you know, you know eight to 10 of these things in, in some sort of portfolio, and then hoping that, you know, you could start to sell these off at some point in time, you know, as you approach retirement age. So that's kind of the thought process with this. Now, if that doesn't happen, I'm a-okay, because I love my index funds. I love, you know, buying real estate. Index funds are like probably the majority of where I want a lot of my dollars going. And so I love doing a lot of this stuff. So I'm okay if that does not happen, if I don't find any more. But I love the thought of just kind of rolling this up. And like I said, I'm the biggest Buffett and Munger fan. So they are the my biggest overall, you know, kind of inspirations for doing this kind of thing on a very small scale. So it just kind of feels like I'm a mini, you know, Buffett or, or Munger in my own little world here. So that's kind of what's fun about it for me. So if I could find some way to do that on a small scale and just kind of sit and be patient and find the right deals, which that's that's kind of what I want to do. Yeah, that's cool. So you you teased a, a, a Christmas tree stand off air. I'd like to I'd like to hear more about that. So I, when I was first got my first job, I was making $30,000 a year. I had this entry level job and I realized very quickly, I have an income problem. So overall, like I'm just getting by, I'm living paycheck to paycheck. I didn't have a lot of money to invest. And I, you know, learned so much about investing that I wanted to invest as much as I possibly could. So I thought to myself, what can I do? And so I, this is one of my first side hustles was I opened a Christmas tree stand and the, I, yes, one of the side of the road Christmas tree stands with the real live trees. And the idea came from my wife's aunt actually does this full time. All she does is she works one month out of the year. She makes about $100,000 a year with two Christmas tree stands. And so I had a mentor in place that could kind of show me how this works. And so I went and spoke to her and we went through the whole process. She gave me her tree uh, distributor and we started this off. And she even had an extra tent that I rented from her for like 5,000 bucks. One of those giant, massive, like circus looking tents. Mm -hmm. So she gave me a really good deal on it. 
And so we started this. So we set it up on the, the side of the road, had our tree order come in and they, they'll do it on credit. So it, it came in about $7,000 with the trees. And we set it up in a different way. I think a lot of tree stands do this now. I haven't been to one in a while, but we set it up in a different way. We tried to make the tree stand look like a forest. So we would put these big stakes in and then we'd have all the trees actually standing up where you can go and look at them before you buy them instead of just piling them all in the back. And so we had it in a different way where you could kind of see, hey, where are the holes on this tree? Is this an actually nice looking tree? And so we tried to differentiate in that way. And in addition, we would put together different clippings. So when we clip the trees on the bottom, when we would sell it to people, then we would take those clippings and we could turn them into wreaths. So we, we created another revenue stream. And then outside of that, then we took some of this revenue and we went and bought poinsettias. And then we'd sell the poinsettias in there. So these really large poinsettias. And so this was kind of like my first time actually starting a business and understanding how business works, where you're taking some of the revenue, you're reinvesting it into some of these other ways that you can make more revenue. And you're doing it in a short period of time. Well, this kind of was my school of hard knocks for business. And it kind of took me through this process of this physical business so I could learn how to to increase that revenue. So overall, we did this for a couple of years and we would make, you know, seven to 10,000 bucks a year. We didn't make the 50,000 that she made, but the location really matters of where your tree stand is. And then as we got busier and as I earned more income, then I decided to kind of let it go. But sometimes I wish I still had it now because I could roll it up into a holding cup or something like that (laughs) where you could kind of franchise it out. But, But I have a lot of ideas with it. And that was my first foray into business. I'm going to remember the next time I need to buy a Christmas tree, I'm going to call you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I've got some tips for you if you want to keep it alive longer. Half soap, half water in the bottom. That's awesome. Well, Andrew, this has been a ton of fun. You've just laid out the the knowledge for the listeners. And so we appreciate that. We appreciate your stories and experiences and you sharing that with us. So where can people listen to more about you and and really get down in the nitty gritty of the things that you teach. Absolutely. So our show is on any podcast player, whatever podcast player you're listening on right now, it is the personal finance podcast. We have the most boring name in the world, but that is what it's called is the personal finance podcast. And we teach you how to build wealth. So we talk about investing to how to manage your money, how to automate your money, what like we talked about early in this episode, some of our order of operations that we believe in those types of things. So you can catch that anywhere you're listening to this podcast right now. And in addition, our website is mastermoney.co where we have our newsletter and a bunch of other things there. So that's mastermoney.co. So if you want to check that out, you can check that out as well. And we're on all the socials at mastermoneyco. Well, well worth checking out. Uh, lots of great stuff. I'll put all those links in the show notes so everybody can check all that out. And I, again, I strongly encourage you to go listen to his show. As you can see, he's smart and he brings a lot of energy and it's a lot of fun to listen to. And even though he has the most boring name in the podcasting world, it's not a boring podcast at all. So Andrew, thank you very much for taking time out of your day to join us today. We really, really appreciate it. And everyone, you guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. 
laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.